0: You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: Good afternoon, and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education, and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now, here's your host, Mary Woods.
2: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to One Hour at a Time. Um, This is Mary Woods, your host, and this is New Year's Eve. Happy New Year, everybody. Um, we have a really exciting program today. Um, the title of our show is called Broken Mirrors, Helping Women See Themselves Clearly. And surely today is a day where um, all of us make New Year's resolutions. And most of the time, for most of us, one of those revolves around our, our weight and our that is, is has something to do with our self-image. And um, we are really lucky today to have our guests, um, two physicians from Timberline Knoll's, uh, we, I will first introduce Dr. Sheldon Miller, who is the uh, Chief Medical Officer for um, Timberline Knowles. He was the Chairman of the Department of Psychiat- Psychiatry at the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey, New Jersey Medical School. Um, Dr. Miller was appointed a Director of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology in 1991 and a Director of the American Board of Emergency Medicine in 1999. He is a fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and the American College of Psychiatrists and a member of the Board of Directors for Accreditation, Council for Graduate Medical Education. He is a graduate of Oberlin College and received his medical training at Tufts University School of Medicine. He is a graduate of Psychiatry Residency Program at Case Western Reserve University where he also served on the faculty for 11 years. Um, We also have with us Dr. Kimberly Dennis. The Associate Medical Director for Timberline Knowles. She also has a private practice with Working Sobriety Chicago, a group of practitioners offering intensive outpatient treatment for families and adolescents with addictions and compulsive behaviors. She maintains a holistic perspective in the practice of psychiatry, which I hope she'll talk more about, incorporating biological, psychosocial, and spiritual approaches to individually tailored treatment plans to foster healing. Dr. Dennis brings an awareness of the benefits of storytelling, creativity, and play in the recovery process. Um, Dr. Dennis obtained her medical degree from the University of Chicago School of Medicine and completed her psychiatry residency training at the University of Chicago Hospitals, where she served as chief resident. During her training, she was part of a multidisciplinary eating disorders team specializing in treating adolescents with eating disorders and their families. Welcome, Dr. Dennis and Dr. Miller. Thanks, okay. hi. Hi, thank you. Um, I just wondered, first of all, uh, before we talk about eating disorders, what made each of you um, become interested in this uh, discipline?
3: In psychiatry?
2: Well, and in eating disorders as well, because this is not an easy thing to treat.
4: Um, I happen to uh, just love the patients uh, who have eating disorders. Um I liked them from the first time I had the chance to work with them as a resident, and um, you know, there's definitely a need for psychiatrists who specialize in eating disorders, so I feel lucky and blessed that I uh, took to it so easily and enjoy the work so much. And I'd
3: add to it, I think um, although we use the term pretty freely these days, I'm still not convinced we really understand what this is all about. From all aspects, from, from certainly from an emotional aspect, but also from a biological aspect. And I'm always fascinated by the why is this happening question, and given the why is this happening question, how can we best help it? Um, it's also one of the behave, behavioral kinds of disorders, one of the few that can result in some incredibly severe outcomes, including death. That makes it a very special thing for psychiatrists to be kind of interested in.
4: Yeah, that's one of the highest um, premature mortality rates of any of the psychiatric illnesses. Um,
2: Could you, uh, one of you or both of you begin by just telling our listeners what are eating disorders and how would you identify an eating disorder?
4: Um, So, uh, generally, there are uh, three diagnoses for what we as psychiatrists uh, diagnose as eating disorders, Um, and I I will share them in the order of least common to most common. Um, There's anorexia nervosa um, and there are specific criteria to be met with respect to degree of um, starvation, degree of uh, low body weight, uh, as well as length of time. Um, and several other criteria to diagnose somebody with anorexia. The, the gist of anorexia nervosa is uh, severe preoccupation with weight, weight gain, fear of being fat, um, inability or unwillingness to maintain body weight um, at a healthy weight. Um, and then there's the, the second category of, of the eating disorders is bulimia nervosa. Um, Bulimia nervosa is marked by episodes of binge eating. Um, And to define what I mean by binge, binge is eating um, an extensively uh, supranormal amount of food in a short amount of time and experiencing being out of control of the eating. Um, And in bulimia, those binge episodes are connected with purging behaviors, uh, most commonly vomiting, but also other, other ways to purge, like using laxatives or over-exercise, um, and several other ways as well. Uh, the last category of eating disorders is something we call eating disorder not otherwise specified. Uh, this happens to be the most common of the eating disorders, and it includes things like um, people who purge without binging, um, and are maintaining a normal weight, uh, people who eat compulsively, um, uh, binge eating disorder is a, uh, is a um, research criterion right now. It will probably be a, an actual eating disorder that we, uh, an actual diagnosis that we use in the next uh, version of our diagnostic manual um, and a lot of times that's associated with obesity which is both in adolescents and adults, uh, epidemic in this country.
2: Um, What is the rate of uh, eating disorders among men and women?
4: Um, So there's... It's uh, more prevalent in in women, uh, and there's a growing number of men um, with eating disorders, uh, some of whom are athletes, um, some of whom are survivors of uh, childhood trauma, um, and there's a lot of speculation in the field as to why we're seeing more eating disorders in in men these days. Um, you know, whether it's more socially uh, acceptable for men to seek help today than it was 20 years ago, or is it more that there's actually a higher number of men with eating disorders now? Um, but in general, um, about 1% of the population. Um, has a diagnosis at some time in their life of anorexia nervosa and about 5% bulimia nervosa. (coughs) Subclinical eating disorders, which are um, eating disorders that don't meet the strict criteria in our diagnostic manual, Um, the estimates of how many people, college women, suffer from, from that is anywhere from 20 to 50%. Um, These are women that have eating disorder behaviors but don't meet full criteria for the actual eating disorder.
3: I'd like to just add to that that although they don't meet the serious strict criteria, many of them are in serious trouble even though they don't quite make it to the borderline of weight versus height and so forth. So it's probably a lot more prevalent then our, our hard statistics, which are based on the hard criteria, would show. So it, it's a very serious problem in society.
2: Yeah. When you say they're in serious trouble, what do you
3: mean? Well, um, they're on the border of, of weight that is not a healthy weight. I mean, it, it, when you use the strict criteria, if you're one pound off, you'll be on one side of the fence. If you're another pound down, you'll be on the other side of the fence. That doesn't mean you're still not... Um, uh, 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 exposed to, to many of the health problems that occur at very low body weights. So that's pretty much what I mean. Not only the health problems, but also the behavioral problems. Social problems. Social, problems social, academic anxiety. problems. Right. Spiritual problems. All of those things can occur even if they don't quite make it.
2: What are the health problems that occur at a low body weight? I think a lot of us can understand like morbid obesity, what the health problems are. But um, you know, can you be too thin?
4: Oh, boy. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it Being uh, severely underweight, having anorexia nervosa uh, impacts all of the body's organs, from the skin to the heart to the liver to the brain um, to the nervous system, um, probably the most deadly of the complications would be uh, cardiac arrhythmias, um, irregular heartbeats due to electrolyte imbalances. Um, seizures is another thing that we see frequent, not infrequently um, in people who have anorexia because of extremely low levels of sodium in their blood. Um One of the most irreversible um, and serious consequences of anorexia uh, can be osteoporosis and osteopenia, which is a lower-level osteoporosis, Um, and that is due to uh, suppressed hormone levels, sex hormone levels, um, which we need around in order to be able to mineralize our bones and keep our bones strong. Um, Is
2: infertility common? in women with um,
4: eating disorders? It is, um, but there are a couple of caveats to that. Um, amenorrhea is when a woman stops stops having menses, um, yeah. but fertility actually is one of the things that is most of the time reversible. Most women with eating disorders, once they're maintaining a healthy weight, stably um, regain their fertility.
2: Um Thank you for uh, giving us the overview on eating disorders. When we come back, we will be talking more with Dr. Miller and Dr. Dennis from Timberline Knowles, and we will focus on our self-image and how that affects our eating habits and eating disorders in general. We'll be right back.
1: If you're looking for a better way to clean the air in your home or office, you need the all-new Ozone Light. It's as simple as changing your light bulbs. The Ozone Light looks like a normal spiral type of light bulb. It screws in most standard light sockets, but it's not a normal light bulb. It's coated with titanium dioxide. It's completely safe, but this unique coating kills most airborne bacteria, mold spores, and neutralizes odors. Just one light cleans the air in an entire room and lasts eight times longer than the normal light bulb. If you have smokers if you have allergies if you have pet odors mold or mildew you need the ozone light it will wipe them out and you have our word if you are not satisfied with the way the ozone light cleans the air in your home simply
6: return it for a full refund here's the number to call to order 800-380-4259 800-380-4259 save up to 100 now 800-380-4259 800-380-4259 A fresh look at
0: today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary
2: and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Happy New Year, everyone. I hope you all have a great time tonight and a safe and sober time tonight. We're talking with Dr. Sheldon Miller and Dr. Kimberly Dennis from Timberline Knowles, and our uh, program today is called Broken Mirrors, Helping Women See Themselves Clearly. And prior to going to break, we were talking about the three major types of eating disorders that people um, can experience we were talking a little bit about um, some of the signs and symptoms, but also we were talking about the physical um, ramifications of eating disorders. And Dr. Miller, can you kind of share with our audience um, some of the actual acute physical things that you see with, with folks?
3: That come sure. And we've actually seen these here at Timberline when people have come in you know, to, for admission. Um, I want to emphasize how serious the anorectic disorder really is. I mean, this can result in in sudden death very easily. I think uh, Dr. Dennis mentioned it. Just to emphasize and perhaps give you an example, most people's normal heart rate at rest is someplace between 60 and 70 beats per minute. We've had people come in here, and when we take our first look at them, they're walking through the door with heartbeats at 40 beats per minute or lower. With that kind of a cardiac rate, they're at risk of, of literally dying at any moment. And the scariest part is that part of this disease is a disease of denial to some degree, and they come in here having gone through extensive strenuous exercise at times moments before they enter, and they enter with a heart rate that low, which is literally on the borderline between life and death. So These are very serious diseases. They are diseases of denial, both from the standpoint of the person who has it and the standpoint of the people that are around them, and I just want to emphasize that denial can kill people.
2: Um, well, that, that's a nice actual segue into our next segment because, um, you know, one of the things that that um, we know about eating disorders, it's really not just about food. Just like alcoholism isn't just about alcohol. And that eating disorders have a lot to do with how we perceive our bodies and our body image. And, you know, there was just the whole thing in the paper about Jennifer Love Hewitt, who was on vacation and somebody took... Um, you know, a picture of her and she had some cellulite and it's like, this woman is a size 4. And they were talking, you know, in the media about her being fat. And so, you know, everywhere you look, you see Mary-Kate and um, Ashley, the Olsen twins, and, you know, they're they're like sticks. And, you know, it's just women are bombarded with these images of too thin, um, like, concentration camp survivors that look like models and they get paid millions of dollars. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we should talk a little bit about self-image and how that affects our our eating habits.
4: Um, Well, as you said, just as this alcoholism is not um, only about alcohol. Alcohol is just a symptom of a lot of underlying issues. Same with eating disorders. Um, You know, the, the mentality of the eating disorder is very pervasive. It affects a person's interpersonal relationships, the way a person looks at herself and experiences herself. Um, Very commonly, women with eating disorders or adolescents with eating disorders um, put how their body looks as the sole value or purpose of their life. Um, And that leaves a lot else of the picture out. Um, There's a a lot of blindness to uh, a person's beauty and a person's assets, a person's womanhood, um, when the sole focus of somebody's life becomes being skinny and ultra-thin. For a lot of women, it's, it's not... Um, there's a subgroup of women with eating disorders, particularly anorexia, that do not have the uh, fear of fatness or fear of gaining weight. Um, and a lot of what they're starving over is um, things like feelings inside, feelings of, I'm not good enough, or feelings of, I'll never measure up, or feelings of, I'm different from other people and I can't connect to other people and there's something wrong with me. So it goes much, much deeper than, than food and a lot of times much, much deeper than body and body image um, to the broader uh, definition of self-image. Who am I as a person? Who am I as a woman? Um, who am I as a friend or a partner?
2: Well, and there's not much in our society that really helps any woman figure that out. You know, mm-hmm. um, we're kind of taught to be con- in competition with each other and alienated from each other. And, you know, I I was the director of a woman's halfway house, and what was really sad was that, you know, the women just didn't know how to relate to each other. You know, the people they had most in common with, they, they couldn't access that, you know, because we're not really taught how to access other women.
4: Yeah, and it's it's the eating disorders um, are very much diseases of isolation, Um, and most of the women we treat come in being very certain about how they're different from other women and find it revolutionary and very difficult to look at how they can identify and connect with other women. Um, And unfortunately, a lot of the places that do support women in connecting and coming together are treatment centers, um, halfway houses, um, grateful that they're there, uh, 12-step meetings, and those sorts of places. But I would say that the general society, that's that's the message that we um, give to our young women and, and girls is, you know, a message of be better than, be outstanding, compete, rather than collaborate and connect and be who you are. Right.
3: I have to say I was delighted a few months, I guess, ago when the French uh, modeling organization put their foot down and finally said they weren't going to allow this image to be the image of what modeling and beauty is. And I think that's exactly the right thing to do, and they made a major contribution. I would certainly hope that sometime in this country, whoever handles these kinds of things over here would take a model, uh, take a lesson rather, from their French colleagues and begin to do the same thing. Uh, hopefully, that kind of very visible statement um, might help some folks. Yeah.
4: And we, we don't really give women and girls in this country a good message about what it is to be a woman when the image we're projecting is looks very much more like a man or a boy than a woman. Right. Um, it's the, it's, in reality, it's a pretty hostile message. <laughs> but there are some companies and some organizations, as Dr. Miller said, that are... Um, You know, taking affirmative action to change that and to um, show and to, uh, you know, to highlight women who are healthy and women who look like women and have curves and are alive.
2: Um, I had mentioned earlier that I had worked in a woman's halfway house, and we had one woman who came in who was bulimic, and she, she had not drank or used cocaine in about three months, but... Having her in the house was just like having somebody who was actively using. She, you know, she would, um, she she would uh, eat all the cereal, and the people <clears> would <was> get <throat> up in the morning, and there was no there was no, no breakfast food. Um, she would vomit in the, the bathroom and not clean up, and it was just she was just so out of control. And this was back in the eighties, and like we really didn't know what to do, you know, and. Um, and and I know in working with with women who are who have substance use disorders, oftentimes there's there's some type of an eating disorder underlying that kind of rears its ugly head once they get sober. And you know, how common is that in women with um,
4: substance use disorders? Very very common. <laughs> um, one of the joys for me in working at Timberline Knowles is that we we use a um, we use a treatment model and a treatment philosophy that addresses the eating disorder and the chemical dependency very much in the same vein because um, about, I would say, 60 to 75% of our women who come here for alcoholism or chemical dependency issues have underlying or co-occurring um, eating, at least disordered eating. Um, and. Most of them have also um, bona fide eating disorders. And it's um, not very common to find uh, places that do treat both. No, not at all.
3: And it's pretty clear that if you don't treat both and ignore one in favor of the other, you're setting whoever is being treated up for relapse. (laughs) From probably to probably both illnesses at the same time, so it's critical to recognize these things and to deal with them together, and not in one instead of another.
2: Um, is it just young women that you see come into treatment with eating disorders, or do you see older women
4: as well? No, we see um, the whole range: young women. Older women who've only been in treatment for chemical dependency and have never addressed the underlying eating issues, um, uh, the, the longer the eating disorder has been around, the more chronic it is, the more difficult it is to treat, but we definitely see women in their 30s, 40s, and 50s with ongoing active eating disorders.
3: There's another thing we see happening that is also kind of disturbing, and that is not the women in in their 40s that actually come in, but their daughters that come in. And what we find often is that um, we're seeing the the second generation of eating disorders in the same family um, where the parent has never gotten treatment, has been... An eating disordered person for a long, long time, and now their daughter is coming into treatment and is also most often an anorectic uh, person. It makes for very interesting treatment problems. Okay, um,
2: how in briefly, um, how common is it for um, for a woman to be able to? successfully recover from both disorders?
3: Well, you know, I think with, with proper treatments and treating things together um, and realizing that both of these things are chronic and relapsing disorders. In other words... You know, it's not dissimilar from treating somebody with any chronic disease where things may go well for a long time and then there may be a little problem and you put them back on the track and things go again pretty well. If you take the long view of things, um, the outcome for people, providing they haven't gone to a place of really, you know, causing serious permanent damage, is pretty good. Um, I think we've, uh, we've seen people come in um, certainly just in the short run, uh, they go out, at, they come in at some horrendous rate, weight, and they can go out at a weight that's really pretty acceptable. Long haul, um, I don't know, maybe 50, 60 percent uh, over a year are going to stay, or maybe more will stay well. as long as there's ongoing treatment, It isn't a matter of coming into the hospital coming into a rehab center, getting this, that, or the other thing, and then saying, voila, I'm cured. All it is is a beginning, and as long as there's good continuation and good aftercare and involvement in 12-step programming and other self-help kinds of groups, good probabilities of recovery.
2: Okay. We will um, be back in just a moment with um, more on um, eating disorders with Dr. Kimberly Dennis and Dr. Sheldon Miller from Timberline. (laughs)
0: you're listening to voice america health and wellness
5: common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's Westbridge.org. Families into recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders.
1: For the most current and up-to-date information and options in childbearing, family health, and parenting, tune in to Celeste Ranese's Timely Topics in Childbirth, broadcasting every Wednesday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. If you don't know your options, you don't have any.
6: Voice America Network proudly presents the Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern to the Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel.
2: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and it is January thirty first, two thousand and seven. Um, Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, we are with Dr. Kimberly Dennis, who's the Associate Medical Director at Timberline Knowles, and Dr. Sheldon Miller, who's Chief Medical <coughs> Officer at Timberline Knowles. And today we've been talking about um, broken mirrors, women helping women see themselves cl- clearly. And clearly, we're not going to do this in an hour, but. One of the things that we were um, talking about before we went to break was how oftentimes eating disorders occur with other um, disorders as well, be it alcoholism or substance um, abuse, cocaine addiction, um, trauma. And um, maybe you, uh, Dr. Miller or Dr. Dennis, you could tell our listeners a little bit about, um, about what, what that clinical picture is, somebody with trauma and eating disorders or stimulant abuse.
3: Well, I think the important thing is to recognize that these things are not pure, and most people don't have a pure disease of one sort or another when we start talking about this spectrum of disorders, but rather there are multiple problems. And sometimes there are literally multiple problems. We're not just talking even about two things. We may get somebody in that has... um, an eating disorder, but also is not only uh, dependent on alcoholism on alcohol, but may also be very dependent on things like cocaine, methamphetamine, and a variety of other rather unsavory drugs. So this is usually a very complicated situation, often a very complicated situation where people come in with multiple issues. On top of that, they may very well be coming in with, and and almost would be surprising if they weren't coming in. With things like depressive disorders on top of all this, when you, I mean, just if you think about what's going on, to not, to, to, to not be depressed would be quite an impressive situation. Uh, after all of this, you would imagine depression. Plus, all of these disorders can be the, the cause of depression. Eating, I think uh, Dr. Dennis mentioned earlier on that eating disorders does have an effect on brain. I mean, literally a physical effect on brain. All of the chemicals have physical effect on brain. Uh, alcohol is a depressant. It depresses the brain function. Uh, cocaine is a stimulant, but when you go off of it, there's a crash and a depression that sets in. And this is I could go on and on with some of these things. So it's very complicated, very interrelated. Causes often are um, not only just the obvious psychological experience that might cause some a depression or something else, but also, again, I emphasize the physical issues here as well. All of these things have consequences <coughs> on the physical health of the brain in many, in different ways, but the outcome is, is one in which you need to pay attention to all of this, and then the other <coughs> thing we know is that um, just because you have one thing, it doesn't confer immunity on you from having a bunch of other things. I think we we like to think that it would be very nice if people only had one thing and we could just take care of it and they would go on their way, but that's just not the way it is. So not only do we deal with situations where people have depression or other psychiatric issues along with these things and maybe because of eating disorders and and addictions, but in addition to that, they may very well have the bad luck to have other disorders that are indeed independent and just happen to show up in the same person. Again, another treatment challenge and another challenge for people to get well. So it's really a very, very complicated uh, kind of situation where uh, the important, the most important takeaway, I think in a sense from all of this, is that when they're treated, there must be attention paid to all of this. Certainly in any given person, one may be on this day more urgent than the others, but to treat one piece of it without paying attention to and becoming involved with the other pieces of this thing is just not a very helpful thing to do and is likely to end up with a bad outcome.
4: Yeah, to go a little bit further on the substance piece, um, (laughs) stimulant abuse, um, stimulants like cocaine or even prescription medications, Ritalin, Adderall, is um, pretty common in, in women with anorexia. Um, almost, almost all of my adolescent anorexic patients um, ask me for Ritalin and Adderall because they have quote-unquote ADD. And I, I usually respond to them by saying, yes, I do believe you have attention deficit disorder. You've been really deprived of attention for a lot of your life. <laughs> I don't think Ritalin is the answer. Um, so a lot of our women come in on medications um, that can make the eating disorder worse or make recovery from the eating disorder much more difficult. Um, for bulimia, um, we see alcoholism um much more commonly, um, and sometimes uh, marijuana addiction as well. Um, I just want to touch a little bit further, too, on um, on trauma. Um, many, many of our women with eating disorders um, have some history of trauma, sexual trauma, whether it's overt sexual abuse or covert sexual abuse, um, incest, um, Physical violence or physical abuse in the family. Um, you know, we we don't believe these disorders happen in a vacuum. Um, you know, a lot of it's not uncommon for there to be other diseases in the family, diseases like alcoholism, um, depression, um, parents who were unavailable for one reason or another. <coughs>
2: Um, over the years, I've I've heard a, a series of um, and I don't know whether they're myths or they're facts. So I'm going to give um, you a couple of them, and you can tell me whether they're myths or they're facts. That um, the rate of nicotine use among adolescents is one of the reasons it's high is because um, adolescents use nicotine for
4: weight control. Um, for women, yeah, and adolescent girls. Uh, That is a fact. Um, Women who are... um, Women and adolescents who are uh, dependent on nicotine um, cite as, almost always cite as the primary reason they don't want to get off the cigarettes um, because they don't want to get fat or I'm already fat. I I can't afford to gain 10 pounds when I go off of this.
2: Um, Another thing I've heard over the years that eating disorders are a form of um, obsessive-compulsive disorder.
4: Um, In as much as uh, alcoholism is a form of obsessive-compulsive disorder.
3: Uh, Yeah, I I think the... um, (coughs) Here we get into whether we're going to be talking about common usages of terms or technical uses of terms. There is such a... There is a diagnosis of obsessive-compulsive disorder with a whole series of criteria. That's probably not what we're talking about. There is a certain obsessive and compulsive nature to these other things that you just mentioned, but that's different from the formal diagnosis of obsessive-compulsive disorder. So there's a little difference here. Just to make it even more confusing for a minute, there's nothing to say, however, that somebody can't have both an eating disorder, one, and separately be unfortunate enough to have a formal diagnosis of obsessive compulsive disorder also. Matter of fact, we actually had somebody, we've seen patients.
4: We have quite a few.
3: Quite a few that come in with this dyad of diagnoses that are different from what the common usage of the term obsessive or compulsive might be, but are technical diagnoses again, that both things need treatment.
2: Um, the last one I'm going to throw at you is that eating disorders for women are a form of control, and because women feel the need to be in control, they don't access self-help groups um, readily when they have eating disorders.
4: Um, I'll break that into two... I'll address both parts of, of that last okay. one. Um, the eating disorder is about control and terror around letting go of control. Um, and a lot of that is rooted in the experiences a lot of these girls and women have had when somebody else or something else is in control. Um, horrible experiences that a lot of them had had in those sorts of situations. Um, and I don't think that uh, women with eating disorders or girls with eating disorders are much different from someone with alcoholism, a woman with alcoholism or a woman with an addiction with regards to resisting going to a 12-step recovery group. And again, I think that speaks to some of the uh, core underlying issues, Um, the things like isolation, um, the things like it's it's, my life is easier if, if it's all about food or to eat or not to eat rather than what does it mean and what does it take for me to be in a relationship with another human being? Uh, 12-step uh, recovery meetings uh, kind of necessitate that you're in relationship with a group and with other human beings. And um, at the beginning of recovery, for, for most people with eating disorders and other addictions, it's unimaginable to be in that kind of situation.
2: <clears throat> so it is very complicated.
3: It is complicated
2: yes. with more with our last segment with our guests um, to talk about broken mirrors helping women see themselves clearly
0: a fresh look at today's health voice America health and wellness.
5: fashion common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders that's Westbridge.org family to recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders.
6: The incidence of autism has increased at an alarming rate. Autism One, a conversation of hope, hosted by Betsy Hicks, illuminates how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Autism is treatable, and given appropriate therapies, children are recovering. With well-known researchers and doctors, members of Congress, and expert service providers from a wide range of disciplines, Betsy offers interviews and insights highlighting the progress in areas related to autism spectrum disorders, such as biomedical research and treatment, communication, education, and behavioral modalities, adult services, sociological and philosophical issues, and legislative advocacy and insurance concerns. Autism One, a conversation of hope, broadcast each Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Autism One, a conversation of hope. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Your life, your health, your network.
0: You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary
2: and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. Um, Happy New Year, and I hope you all have a safe, and um, sober New Year tonight, and uh, lots of wishes for 2008. Our guests today are Kimberly Dennis, associate medical director for Timberline Knowles, and Sheldon Miller, uh, the chief medical officer for Timberline Knowles. And I'd like to talk in our last segment a little bit about, and kind of on a hopeful note, about the recovery and treatment for for women that have eating disorders or co-occurring eating disorders and other disorders. And Maybe you could share with us a little bit about what what treatment is effective and um, how people recover and maybe a little bit about what you do at Timberline Knolls.
4: Sure. Um, well, the, the treatment um, model or framework that we use here is a 12-step model of recovery. Um, and we use that with our women who come here for eating disorder recovery as well as... Um, other addiction recovery, alcoholism, drugs. Um, With eating disorders in particular, um, you know, the the first priority is making sure that the woman is stable medically and that um, if it's somebody who comes in underweight, that refeeding is is the most important um, medicine because we can't really uh, uh, engage somebody in a spiritual form of recovery if they're dead or on their way to being dead. Do you force
2: um, feed people? Do you tube feed people or force feed people? Um, well,
4: we believe that recovery is for people who want it, not for people who need it. So we, we, we haven't had to force feed anybody, but um, if somebody needs tube feeding, um, they usually require a higher level of care than a residential level of care, which is what we do here at Timberline. We we
3: have gotten some people
4: in, and I think Dr. Dennis mentioned earlier
3: on, that we have seen some people with very scary electrolyte levels in their blood, the different elements in the blood that reflect um, uh, health or non-health. And when we get really, really scary low-level electrolytes or, as I mentioned earlier, low-level cardiac status, We'll put them in, a, in an acute medical hospital to get to a point where they're safe to be treated in, in our in our situation and with the kind of program Dr. Dennis just mentioned. So when they're really on the verge of serious physical trouble, which is when you might very well use uh, or be forced to use some invasive techniques, they, they tend to be in the hospital. By the time they come back, we try other things as Dr. Dennis has mentioned.
4: Yeah, we, you know, with the refeeding piece, we do a lot of um, individualized nutritional plans um, and we ask our residents to, you know, surrender the food and the eating piece to um, the treatment team um, and to trust that we, we have their backs and we want for them to be healthy. And we can help them uh, see, because we can see their, their potential and who they really are, um, whereas many of them can't see that in their broken, uh, acute, starved state. So um, we also have meal support so that the meals are therapeutic um, and there are staff members and peer support in finishing meals. Um, and we really try to normalize um, eating. Um, and increase flexibility around certain foods. And, um, you know, one of the best ways to, to teach that is to model it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we try to do... We try to live the way that we're uh, trying to help our residents live um, when we're treating them. Uh, we use a variety of groups as well, as um, you know, some particular forms of therapy have been shown to be useful for some of the particular forms of eating disorders. Um, family therapy is very important for um, pretty much anybody with an eating disorder, but particularly so for adolescents who are going to be going back home and living with their families uh, after treatment. For many of the adolescents, um, we use cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, as well as dialectical behavioral therapy, (coughs) um, individual therapy, and uh, a group process therapy, which is a a form of therapy that helps people practice the principles of recovery in a here-and-now kind of way. How long
2: would someone stay inpatient? I'm sorry? How long would someone stay as an inpatient? (laughs)
4: Um... Well, in the residential setting, uh, ideally um, for adolescents, a minimum length of stay would be two months. Mm -hmm. Um, We've had people who have stayed much longer than that, um, five months, six months. Um, We have the capacity to treat adolescents um, for a whole school year through their home school district. Um, So it really is a individualized kind of um, recommendation. Uh, but we do believe that a minimum of, of 60 days in a resi- at this residential uh, level of care, um, because not only are we working with the residents, we're doing a lot of work with the family, um, you know, family meal support training and family therapy. <clears throat> uh, we use a lot of the expressive therapies um, to get the women connected to their creativity, uh-huh. um, things like art therapy, dance movement therapy. Um, so there's, there's a lot of recovery that happens in a short amount of time, um, mentioned... a relatively short amount of time. Yeah. Um,
2: you mentioned a little bit about the ability to help at Timberline Knowles um, young women with, with school. Could, could you t- talk a little bit about your uh, program there?
4: Sure, sure. Um, We have uh, Timberline Knowles Academy on site um, where we have our own teachers who work intensively with uh, the home school districts to keep our residents uh, as much on track academically as as we can while they're getting their intensive therapy here. um, For residents or adolescents who come here um, from their school districts already with individualized education plans. Um, sometimes if those schools are not able to support these kids in their recovery the way that we can here, their their home school district will um, send them here mm-hmm. and work with our academy staff um, on the academic piece. Um, and most of our girls... Um, who, who come here as adolescents are able to either return to their home school um, or graduate um, from high school in the time that they're here
2: and what kind of programming do you have for women for older women for women? Because you, you do t- treat older women as well right they're 30, yeah 40 we do
4: um, We actually have we, we have an adolescent program and an adolescent lodge which is um, separate from the adult lodge and the adult program. Um, And the adult programming is uh, a bit more intensive than the adolescent. Um, They don't have school, obviously. Um, And they have uh, a few extra groups to address things like children of mothers who have eating disorders and addictions, um, education around the family disease and how to talk to um, spouses, other family members, and children about the disease. Um, you know, the uh, sexuality groups and the adult women residents are at a different level than the sexuality groups for the adolescent um, women with eating disorders.
3: The other thing I'd add is that we, we um, particularly with the kids, who are going to be going back home to their parents, work with the parents to teach them how to deal with their kids at meals, how to help them, how to make a meal uh, a therapeutic activity as opposed to a hostile or punitive activity. And many of the kids have come in here, and you can only imagine what this is like to families when they see their daughter getting thinner and thinner and pushing the food away and so forth. You can imagine that meal times become difficult.
4: And I I just want to say one thing about something that I believe is very important in recovery is having fun and the ability to have fun. Um, And we try to um, provide as much of that, uh, as much space as we can for um, our women and our adolescents to have fun in recovery.
2: Um, Our show today is being taped, so if any of you would like to learn more about... Um, eating disorders. Um, how can people? How can our listeners um, contact you, Dr. Miller or Dr. Dennis?
4: Um, the website for Timberline Knowles is www. That's t i m b e r k n o l l s. Dot And the toll free um, phone number here at the treatment center is eight seven seven.
2: Two five seven nine six one one. And do you have any um, last thoughts? This being New Year's Eve, um, for folks who are listening, or um,
4: suggestions? Or it's a great day to begin recovery. It's a great day to continue recovery, and
3: and it's a good time to realize that recovery is really possible, and life can be very different after being treated.
2: And and that there is hope for people with eating disorders that recover... Absolutely. Time, and that it doesn't have to be a death
4: sentence.
3: No way. No.
4: There is 100% full recovery uh, available to anybody who wants it and is willing to take some actions um, to be in recovery.
3: Good New Year's resolution is to take the first step.
2: And, and to understand that... Um, we're beautiful regardless of how we look.
4: Absolutely right.
2: Um, thank you so much for being our guest on the show today. This has been great. Um, you know, I know this is a very complex problem, and in one hour doesn't really do it justice. But um, you know, it it's just as good to know that there are treatment centers out there that um, that will be able to help women and adolescents deal with this because we see this more and more. Um, you know, um, I see it in my daughter's generation much more so than, than mine. And yes. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't see right. it getting better, you know.
3: Yeah. Yep, absolutely right. But it really does work.
2: And that's, that's I guess that's the best way to uh, leave today. Have a mm-hmm. happy new year and know that um, there is help for those, um, those of us or those of you that have eating disorders or may think you have eating disorders. Um, you don't have to do this alone. So have a Happy New Year, everybody, and we'll see you next week.
1: We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion, one hour at a time. We'll see you next week.